Welcome to season two of Books and Rhymes, the podcast that makes you fall in love with reading while flipping the script with a musical twist on your favourite books. I invite guests to pair books with songs or albums that spark the same emotional connection. I'm your host, Sarah, a West African in the diaspora with a deep abiding love for the written word. Join me as I take you on a musical journey through the works of new and classic authors. Follow Books and Rhymes on Twitter and Instagram. Tweet your thoughts on this episode using the hashtag Books and Rhymes. Today's episode is a continuation of our special one-to-one interviews with the shortlisted writers for the 2020 AKO Kin Prize for African Writing. Our guest, Remy Ngamije, is a Rwandan-born Namibian writer, editor and photographer whose story, The Neighbourhood Watch, is vying for the £10,000 prize. Ooh. The Neighbourhood Watch is a narrative of five flaneurs on their quest for survival on the margins of society. We use the music of Hugh Masekela, Salif Keita, Yemi Alade, Lady Smith Black Mumbatsu are selected by today's guest, Remy Ngamije, to unpack the intricacies of his story, The Neighbourhood Watch. Remy also opens up about the triumphs and challenges of spearheading Dirk Lit Mag, a literary journal in Namibia. That's Dirk Lit Mag, D-O-E-K-L-I-T-M-A-G.com, a literary journal from Namibia. The winner of the AKO Kane Prize will be announced online on the 27th of July. The event is free and open to all. Visit KanePrize.com for more details. That's KanePrize.com for more details. The shortlisted stories are also available on Kane Prize website. So go read the stories, but obviously finish listening to this episode before you go and read the stories. Ha ha ha. So yeah. your story, The Neighbourhood Watch, has been shortlisted for the AKO 2020 Kane Prize. <laughs> Please, how do you pronounce your full name? Okay, so my name is Remy Ngamije. And depending on where you are, it can change. So in Namibia, I am sometimes known as Remy or Remy or Remy, but just Remy will do. And the surname is Ngamije, Ngamije, Ngamije. It's a Kenya Rwanda surname. I'm Rwandan born, lived in Nairobi for a little bit, and then we settled in Namibia in 1997. So this has been the place of my longest settlement. It is now home. It is the place from which I view the world and interact with. I'm a Rwandan born Namibian writer. Let us talk about yeah. your story, The Neighborhood Watch. Ooh, la la. <laughs> Yo, yo, you are, you're something else. I love it. This is the best interview that I've done in a very, very long time. Your story, The Neighborhood Watch, has been shortlisted for the 2020 AKO Ken Prize. How did that feel to receive the news? Oof, man. Uh, I live in Vintuk in Namibia. This is one of the smallest literary communities in the world. Uh, nobody knows about them. Very few people know about it. So to get that news was quite frankly shocking. Uh, that's all it was. It was shocking. You sit and you're like, wait, what? Um, and it's a spotlight. That's what the King Prize is. That's what any award is. It is a spotlight on you and your work. And for me, it was, it was a bit weird because you're like, how did this happen? in this year, in this time, at this moment with the story. Uh, but more than that, uh, the way I navigated that first initial shock was that it's not just me being spotlighted, it's potentially my entire literary community 
Uh, and I'm hoping that through this, more Namibian writers, more writers from SADC will be recognized and that, you know, you will hopefully hear more from this part of the world, you know, because we don't have a lot of Namibian writers. We don't have a lot of Rwandan writers out there. And we don't have all of these interesting hybrid identities that float around Southern Africa that do write, can write, but sometimes they lack the opportunity to broadcast their work. So for me, this Kane Prize was, the shortlisting was, it was, it was really unexpected, but desired for what it can do for this place. And so I'm really keen and excited to see what happens after that. Could you tell us a bit more about the writing community? A little bit about Vintuk. It's a small place, 330,000 people in the whole, in the capital city, 2.5 million in the whole country. So we're a very, very small community. And the background of the literary magazine is that it's just a small project that I started to try and find a way to broadcast local writing, but to show it alongside uh, other continental writing and art, because it is important for me that we resurrect and continue the Pan-African ideal. Wherever we're going, we're not gonna get there by ourselves. So it is an acknowledgement that I come from a limited and a small space. Uh, and I, as much as I will try to broadcast and amplify our work here, I cannot do it alone. So, so Remy, your lit mag, Duck lit mag, could you tell me more about it? Our, our latest edition features writing from Namibia, the Namibian diaspora, Angola, Kenya, Zambia, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, and South Africa. So this is our very first Pan-African uh, edition. Uh, we've curated work from writers, visual artists, our first illustrators. Um, and so it is a very, very rich mix of of content from the continent about the continent. We have also launched a new, a new section called Short Story Long, which explains edition by edition, article by article, the process of going about writing, compiling, submitting or editing nonfiction, fiction and poetry, getting it ready for submission to not only our literary magazine, but any lit mag in the world. And then Thank goodness to my homegirls, Ukiswa Wona, who sat down with us and had our very first interview about writing, about the craft, but craft from an African perspective, because the writing craft for Africans is quite different from everywhere. And so we are trying to, to unlock, we're trying to unlock things about writing, about continental writing that we have not had or we have not accessed before. So click on our website, dukletmag.com, and you will be able to see our latest issue, which just has a diverse range of voices from Namibia, Africa, and African diaspora. Yeah, so the, the website domain, the website domain is dukletmag.com, www.dooklitmag.com. And that is our presence on every single platform, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, dooklitmag. You type it in, we're the only ones who are going to come up under that name. So at yeah. dooklitmag.com, yeah. So I read your story. Mm -hmm. Wow. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. And the thing is, because it is one thing to read a story, it's another mm -hmm. thing to step out and, and sort of look at it from the top and start analyzing it. And in a way, the way a writer pieces the story together, a reader breaks it apart and makes sense of it, right? And so I, I stepped back and I was like, actually, this, you know, this story is broken into seven parts, you know, days of the week, mm, right? Mm. So my first question to you is this, why did you decide to break it 
into seven sections and why did you choose to name those sections after days of the week and why did you choose to fashion it in a non-traditional days of the week kind yeah. of telling of the story yeah um <clears throat> a lot of my storytelling structures are an a are, are a solution or an answer to a problem that i face in that particular story so when this story first manifested itself in my head i really struggled with how i was going to tell this narrative uh, by structure i mean like the physical act of writing it and knowing that you're transitioning from past to present to future, whether you're moving across suburbs or time or geography, those kinds of things. So this was the easiest way in which for me I could do it. I knew it was a story about these people, but I had to find a way to explore and cover vast geography. Vintuk is small, right? But when you start, you'll find out as soon as you start writing about a place, it suddenly becomes bigger than, than you thought. The story itself, you're, you're basically seeing like my solution to a structural problem that I faced because I am not literary trained. I, I, I wasn't, I've never done a master's course in writing or like I don't have an MFA. So a lot of these stories that I want to tell or that are in my head, I don't necessarily know how to tell them but in sitting down and figuring out structures and say let's use subheading or let's use those time breaks or something that's how i solve my challenges so the structure you see is the solution to the problem that i faced that i had a group of five people that i had to move around in vintuk while explaining their challenges while navigating their past present and uncertain future so seven, it was easy because everyone knows what Sunday is, everyone knows what Monday is. So that's solution number one. And then, then, then comes the unknown. Who knows what Avis or Kleinvintuk or Eros are? Nobody knows. So we will use these days to explore these suburbs. Who knows where Pioneers Park is? Namibians will know, but South Africans won't know. People in London won't know. But hopefully in exploring or trying to shade or color in a little bit of the, of the, of the suburbs, people will get the gist. And this is a trick that I learned from other writers, the way they explore space. And the best example, the best localized example I can give you is I feel like I am friends with Zadie Smith on Willis Dean, like, or Camden, like, I don't know, like I've read so much of her work and I feel like, you know what? I am a Londoner. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And now. So. <laughs> 
so you know from from being from learning from other people's craft about how they write and explore their narratives taught me a lot about mine you write about willis dean or camden or north london or whatever nobody says north london a suburb of london they just say north london and they expect you to know it londoners and in film and in sound and in books they do a great job of depicting themselves without explanation we take it as being real and representative. But if someone spends all of their time explaining what the slang is, what the location is, what the history is, it takes away from the reality of that thing. And you can see this a lot in American literature and a lot of American films. They give us films that say we were on the corner of 21 and Lewis. I have no idea whether 21 and Lewis exists. I don't know where it is, but I accept it as gospel. For me, it was also like, I'm going to try and do this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time explaining what Vintuk is, where things are, whatever. I'm going to do my best and hope that it is real enough for them. Because it's real for me. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so in keeping with Books and Rhymes, the podcast, I invite guests to yeah. pair books with songs or albums that spark the same emotional connection. Now, for your story, I sent you some yeah. interesting questions. You know, we broke apart your story and I asked you to pair the questions with songs or albums that spark the same emotional connection. So, yeah. but you know what? You swerved into my lane, Remy, because you curated a playlist to go with each of the different shortlisted stories. Yes, you did. I listened to your playlist. <laughs> yes! <laughs> Oh man, oh. when I read all of the other shortlisted stories, I was, I was like touched that I was like, I was shortlisted with these ridiculously good stories. And I enjoyed that. I mean, Mami Wata was like hilarious. And then you read Grace Jones and the poetry in it was like, wow. And then you read uh, Fisherman Stew and you're like, Joe's sense of memory and nostalgia and depiction and perspective. You're like, what the? And you're like, what am I doing here? It's not imposter syndrome. I don't have imposter syndrome, but it's, it's more of like an acknowledgement of these are really, really good writers. And when you have a really good story, it always speaks to another art form. You get images, you hear sound, you hear taste, you feel something. And with them, my craft, or like the thing that I think about a lot when I'm doing stories is soundtracks, is films, and I think about sound and all of this. And all of those stories were so powerful and so raw that I just like, I got, it's not, it's not the soundtracks that they had in their head when they were writing, but it was the message that came through for me. And so for me, I feel like this is the win. This is the whole thing. You're shortlisting these people forever. And I was like, Yo, guys, I just need to let y'all know that your shit is lit. And this is the music that you guys inspired. And I'm like, man, it's, it's, it's important to be seen and to be heard. Like I said, I noticed that you curated a playlist of the other shortlisted stories, but you did not do one to yours. And yeah. then my question to you is that now, given that Books and Rhymes then sent you a list of questions and said, curate a soundtrack. What was that process like for you? Mm -hmm. And why did you choose the songs that you did? Um, aside from the songs that you paired with the questions I gave you, you, yeah. you, you demarketed your, your playlist according to the structure of yeah, yeah. the story, um, the name yeah. of the what. How did you come up with your songs and why did you decide to, um, to uh, structure your playlist the way you did? Yeah, I didn't think of like a playlist until you actually asked me. That's why I was like, yo, Sarah is 
pulling out full clips here, like banana clips, shooting up the whole club, bro. And so I, it was the first time I had to think of it because I never thought of my story in that way. Even though, of course, music is like a big part of my life and my creative process, I didn't actually think about it here. And so when you asked me that question, I was like, hmm, this is, this is interesting. I could not, for example, come up with a comprehensive song list for the whole neighborhood watch. So I did the same thing, broke it down into days, chose a theme or something in the story for that particular day, amplified a voice that wasn't there. And then once I decided on that, it was about going through my music library and choosing the songs that best fit that. I had some ideas where you're like this, this is going to work with this day. So a lot of my playlisting is based on the intention or the spirit of the playlist. So it's all about like, so what is the spirit of this thing? What is the intention? What do you want the reader to feel? And that's how I went about compiling that playlist. It was narrowing it down again to seven days and then finding the best songs that fit that. And also just for you and perhaps for whoever listens to it in the future, it was about, let me try and make this as strange an experience as possible. So to link it to songs that you definitely maybe might not have heard. That's what an artistic encounter is. One art form informs and fuels another. And I think that's so dope. So I was hoping that, you know, you read the story textually, just the words, and then you asked me for a soundtrack, which I'd never thought about. Which book, story or song inspired you to write The Neighborhood Watch and pair yeah. that with a song that sparked the same emotional connection? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and I was, and I think my answer was, the, the book that I read the most was Ian Sarelia's The Silver Sword, which is like the story that takes place in World War II um, about this family that is separated, the kids are separated, the parents are taken to a concentration camp and the uh, kids, three of them have to survive. It's an older girl, middle-aged, middle, middle child, and then a young girl, and they have to survive in World War II Poland by themselves. They're trekking to Switzerland because their parents told them if anything bad ever happens, meet us in Switzerland. I remember reading this when I was in grade seven, in the seventh grade, and I was deeply touched by the story because the idea of child abandonment is just, and these kids walking through this vast country in a war zone to go meet their parents, it was like, was, was scary. It was scary when I was year younger, and then when I grow older, it was like more emotional, and uh, it was the idea of like, migrating in tough circumstances and trying to make a living day to day. It is not a direct influence, but I read somewhere that it is not a, a writer does not choose their influences. It is the reader who sees and chooses the influences for them. Like you said, like a, a reader breaks apart a story and sees things that a writer didn't, wasn't even aware of. So for me, when you asked me that question, putting myself into my biography, I was like, I think it might've been this because there are similar things. Three people moving through a tough environment, trying to find or make their way to some kind of shelter, some kind of security, some kind of home. You have gender roles, you have, you have people taking advantage of other people, you have hunger, you have starvation, and then you have hope, like blind hope, which is just like simultaneously the saddest, but also the most redemptory thing ever. Yeah, and so that was it. And the song that I thought about, man, is one of my favorite songs, Sadio or Tomorrow by Salif Keita, which I first heard in Ali, starring Will Smith. Mm. And that song 
that song just it touches every time I hear this man's voice, my heart just like flutters because I'm like this is sad and it's so hopeful. It's so hopeful. Sadio, I found out tomorrow. Senegalese player Sadio Mane. It's Sadio, his first name means tomorrow. And I just thought that was such a cool name. I'm like now I know what it means. <laughs> and that song. And he's singing the song about see you tomorrow. After tomorrow, I'll see you. It's basically like, you know what? Whatever happens today, whatever you're going through, tomorrow I'm gonna see you. And for me, it was just it was it was it touched me. And that's what I think about when I think about the neighborhood watch. Because this group of people. You know, they don't know what tomorrow is. Like, it's not promised to them, but they're doing their very best to make it to tomorrow. Mm. It's just, it's so sad. It's just, mm. and that song for me was like emotional. And I remember seeing it in Ali in the film. It's where Ma uh, Will Smith is jogging in Kinshasa. Salif Keita has, he's one of the few people who I can say he's like, he's got a, the voice of Africa and it's mm. mournful but it's also playful and funny mm. but in that song specifically oh girl like mm. <laughs> mm -mm. <laughs> uh tomorrow by Sadif Keita you were able to pinpoint the song to a specific scene in Ali the film and you you remembered because that's yeah. the thing about music isn't it 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 it's uh yeah it seizes your memory you know yeah. and it's it's not just oral it is sensual, you know, yeah. you feel it on all your senses, it triggers memory. So my question to you is this, is which part of the story does tomorrow signify? Ah, man, for me, it is the very end when they wheel their trolley and they walk away from Mrs. Bazadenot's house. Because it's also anchored by this realization that when they leave this place, it leads into uncertainty. That's when the whole cycle starts again, tomorrow, tomorrow. Um, and it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the embodiment, the oral embodiment of their hope. And whether that hope is crushed or whether it is, whether it is met or whether it is satisfied is unknown. Like in the song, Salif Keita says, see you tomorrow. There's no, there's no verse where he's like, now we've met. It's just, I'll see you tomorrow. And so that for me was like, that's the best, scene when they leave on the very last day on Sunday when they meet Mrs. Bazerno and they leave because nothing is promised to them. You don't know whether they're going to survive. You don't know whether they're going to sad. It's just, but that song, oh my gosh, that song. I'm going to ask her to read an excerpt from yeah. The Neighborhood Watch. So I will read an extract from Sunday, which is the very last towards the end of the piece. The neighborhood watch starts in Avis as the sun is setting, hunting for the new apartment complexes that bring a fresh crop of bins to the interlocked pavements, shying away from joggers who avert their eyes when they see them and dog walkers who slacken their grips on leashes. Then they traverse the steep hills of Klein Winter, where people only put out their bins at the crack of dawn to dissuade the dustbin divers from perambulating through their streets. That is how bad it has become, Lazarus says. The rich have got so rich they have started hoarding their trash, 
From there, they scour errors from top to bottom. Through all the streets named after mountains, they will never climb. The rivers they shall never see. All the precious stones they will never hold. Everest, Atlas, and the Drakensberg. Orange, Kunene, Okavango, and Kwisset. Amethyst, Topaz, and Tourmaline. They rove and roam across the neighborhood like wildebeest following the rains, the street following them like a hungry predator. They leave Mrs. Bazadenhall's street for last, eager for her kindness, afraid of the day when she will no longer be around to give and give, when they will still need to take and take, when there will not be enough street in them to face the street. The day before they hit Eros, the day before they visit Mrs. Bazadenhall, the neighborhood watch breaks their one rule. They start thinking of the day that is not today. They say, good, they say goodbye to the day that is yesterday. And worse, they start thinking of the day that is tomorrow. Wow. It is so, I mean, I mean, when you take that reading into context of the song that you picked tomorrow, it is perfect, such a perfect pairing, you know? So when I am... Um, so when I, the way I read is, I just can't help, I, I process as I'm reading, so I can't, I don't know. I read, I can't read, read passively, you know, pen, paper, tabs, everything in hand. Um, but the thing that I kept thinking about when reading The Neighborhood Watch is that it's about stratification, you know, economic stratification, uh, cultural stratification, racial stratification. Um, yeah, and this segment you read just perfectly captured that so i don't know why did you choose to write the ending like that when the story came out it was a big thing because you know where i live i live in one of these one of these like predominantly white neighborhoods where you're told by the neighborhood watch by this i mean by like the organization that drives around paranoid as heck that you're gonna be robbed or whatever but they, by these people, don't put out your bins in the morning. I mean, don't put them out in the evening because you know you have to put it out in the evening to collect the next morning, mm -hmm. right? They said, don't put it out in the evening. You ask why, and they say, because the poor people will go through the bins and we don't want them going through the bins. And so for me, like, it is easy to focus on this group of five people, but think about the unknown masses of people in their houses who are actively depriving these people of a chance at life the mystery of that piece, why it ends that way, is they don't know what tomorrow is, but most of us know what our tomorrow is going to be like. And I think it's just, there's something very fundamentally messed up about the fact that we have internalized this way of continuously keeping the most marginalized amongst us out of our way. We go out of our way to not see them and to try and block them from being seen. One of the better developments is when it was shortlisted for the Kane Prize, this short story became quite popular in Namibian circles and it caused some, some disintegration in some WhatsApp groups because people are like, you know what, this is messed up. We're going to sort our trash. We're going to use what is most usable, put it in one box, put the organic matter in another. And so now on some houses in these leafy suburbs, you have like the, the big green dustbins, which is like the stuff that you can't use. And then you have a box of things that you no longer need, but that are reusable. There's just a fundamental acceptance that what means nothing to me is the world to somebody else. And I think it's that question that we need to ask ourselves 
how is it that something that means so little to me can mean so much to someone else? And how have we allowed things to get this bad? It's one thing to talk about these five people, but I think it's a more interesting and harder conversation to speak about the people in the houses. I think that is a harder conversation to have. And that's, those are some of the things that I am exploring personally, not only in my writing, but just ideas that, are, that, that float in my consciousness that I, that I would like to explore later. We can look at these five people the neighborhood watch, but let's also keep an eye out on the people in the houses and the society that holds them up and that allows these things to happen. So the neighborhood watch comprises of five, um, five people. And yeah. the interesting thing is that you introduce them to us according to their age. So the, you know, you have Elias, the eldest, yeah. Lazarus, uh -huh. um, uh -huh. Silas. Oh, Mahano. So it's, a, it's an Oshiwambo name and it's there. Mahano and Martin. Mahano. Yeah. Omahano is the woman. It is interesting that it is the woman who has the traditional name and the yeah. men have, you know, yeah, the men have biblical names apart from Martin. Yeah, 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 pretty much. Uh, and that's, that's very common in Namibia. So because we were settled by, in, by, by, by missionaries, there were some of the most prevalent people here. So you had like a lot of Swedish, uh, German and English missionaries over here. And one of the things that, one of the ways in which they try to stamp out your indigenous culture was through baptism. So when you got baptized, you had to take a Christian first name. So Elias, Elias, or how we say it over here, Elias. It's common, very common, very common name. Lazarus is a common name over here. Silas, Silas, it's very common over here. And so Omahano is another traditional name that's common as well, but there's a higher chance that she might have a very common Christian name. Her name might be Margaret, you know, but she might go by Omahano. And most likely that name, the reason why they, she goes by that name is that that's what we call like a house name. That's what your family calls you by your middle name, which is like your Oshiwambo, your Sherero, like your traditional, you know, but that's what they call you at home. That's, that's who you are to them. Not so we some best articulate yeah. our Elias, a.k.a. Elias, um, Lazarus, Silas, Omarano, mm -hmm. and Martin would have, responded to, would have responded to the news that their story has been shortlisted for a prestigious prize. For me, I chose the muffins with a sound called, with a song called Sound Check. chant is it a chant yeah tribal chanting that i heard from south africa their south african outfit and it is mysterious because i still don't know what it is and as south africans what are they saying and they say they're not saying anything they're just making sounds and i was like what the heck and i listened to the song and it is and it has rhythms and cadence. And for me, it encompasses the migratory aspect of the neighborhood watcher's life. It is both ancestrally and spiritually complex, like it's deep, like it's moving, but at the same time, it is also quite sad. And then towards, there's, a, there's this high point in the middle when they just sing their hearts out and you're like, this is majestic. 
And the best way I can explain, it's like being, it's like being at like a tribal gathering and like there are all of these sounds that are, that might not be of this world, but they move you and they grab you and you're like, wow. And I've only felt that, that, that I've only felt that instance in like when I've been in drumming circles or like when I meet at choirs, when they are warming up, when everyone's finding their range and whatnot, everyone's making all of these weird sounds. And then there's this magic moment when they all click and they make this new thing that is, that is just powerful. And for me, that's, that's the song I choose, The Muffins with Soundcheck from South Africa. I love how you describe this song. I mean, you have a wonderful way of describing music. You have a way of just making music, um, turning music into feeling. Do you know how you listen to music, but you describe it? Yeah, yeah. Words. It is beautiful. Yeah. So I asked you to imagine you are a musician creating a masterpiece in the form of the Neighborhood Watch. Which yeah. musician comes to mind and which song from their discography best conveys your process of writing the story. Yeah. Um, I choose Huma Sekela's Stimela uh, or the Coltrane. And I choose that one because it is a jazz number fresh out of South Africa as well. And Huma Sekela is one of my favorite musicians and Stimela is my favorite song from him. And the reason I'm gonna choose this is because I heard this song once when I was young and then it was, a, I didn't understand it. And I was like, wow, this is nonsense. And then I heard <laughs> it later when I was older, I was at a concert, uh, Hugh Masekela was performing. He was pretty advanced in age at the time, 75, I think. And this man moved on stage like a lion. Like he was agile. He was banging his cowbell, blowing the trumpet, singing, working this crowd like a professional. And then the song at the very end of his concert, the one that closed it off was Stimela. And it starts off in an interesting way because it's got a very long intro. Every live performance or rendition of the song is quite different. It's got a very long, it's got a very long intro. So he played the intro for like about three minutes. And we didn't, we we're wondering what song is this because he also modifies it. Every intro is different. So you're like, what song is this? What song is this? <laughs> And then he, he like, he works into this narrative, he's playing, his band knows what's happening, but we don't know. And you're hearing all of this, it's like, it's, what song is this man playing now? And we're like, it's his last song. And you're like, is he going to play this song? Because you've literally been waiting for the song. And like, is, he, is it the one, is it? And then he slows it down. And then he starts with the narrative of the, of the song, the part where he tells the lyrics. There's a train that comes from Namibia and Malawi. There's a train that comes from Zambia and Zimbabwe. There's a train that comes from Angola and Mozambique. From Lesotho, from Botswana, from Swaziland. From all the hinterlands of Southern and Central Africa. This train carries young and old African men who are conscripted to come and work on contract in the gold and mineral mines of Johannesburg and its surrounding metropolis. 16 hours or more a and day. He starts, there's, a, there's a train that comes from Namibia and Malawi. There's a train that comes from Zambia and Zimbabwe. There's a train that comes from Angola and Mozambique, from Lesotho, from Botswana, from Swaziland, from all the hinterlands of Southern and Central Africa. This train carries young and old men who are conscripted to come and work on contract in the gold and mineral mines of Johannesburg and its surrounding provinces and metropolis. 
16 hours a day for almost no pay. Ah, yo. And then once it hits that, that's when you realize the gravity of the situation. This train that literally goes around Southern Africa collecting black men, taking them from their home to come and work in coal mines for nothing, for absolute nothing. Slave labor by another name, contract labor, apparently, slave labor. And so once it hits that narrative, I think for me, it's, it's the same process where when I was running the neighborhood watch, you're, you have this mass of unknown where you're starting this story and it starts on a Monday and everyone's like, where's the story going? You know, where is, what is happening? Like, who are these people? Why these people? And then there's a particular point in the story where it hits and you're like, ah, this is what it's about. This is that song. I know this song. I know that story. I know these people. I've seen these people. I understand what they're going through. And so I would choose that because of Hugh Masekela's energy, but also his storytelling prowess because he's just powerful, man. The man is raw. That man is, he sadly passed on RIP forever, moving power. Um, and that song for me carries a lot of weight. And it is, it is a story of Southern Africa that's not been told, but mostly also encompasses these people's migration, because being homeless means that you had a home and you are being, you are pulled from it by something or someone or some circumstance. The, by the way, steamella is the sound that the train makes, steamella, you know, it's steam. Yeah, so the coal train for me is like, it's more than the thing that happened in 19, 40s Africa, more than the thing that happened in 1816, more than the thing that happened in, more than the shift that happened in 1619. It's this constant migration or this constant movement, this constant exploitation or trafficking of black bodies, and it's still going around. You, I like mm. that you touched on the title of the song Stimela, which is, you know, and I wrote Onomatopoeia, mm. you know, the sound that the train makes. Mm. So that's a play on word from Hugh Masekela. And um, he's also an expert mm -hmm. in creating, in sort of, um, you know, migration, the, the, the narrative of migration. He's sort of writing a song, weaving migration into an oral sound. So let's talk about language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing that mm -hmm. stood out to me, Remy, in your language, in the way you wrote the story is that this is, on the surface, it looks like a subject matter that has been exhausted right the story of poor young people mm -hmm. poor displaced young people it sounds like a story that has mm -hmm. been exhausted people have written about this for too long but the way you wrote about it i i mean you use a lot of euphemisms and signifiers mm -hmm. as supposed to being explicit and i'll give you an example do you mind if i ask you to read a section of the story elias has a racking cough he pulls the mucus through the back of his mouth and arcs a dollop away where it lands with a plop the cuff becomes worse every day. Sometimes there is blood in the gunk from his chest, but he waves everyone's concerns away. Blood is a part of life. Blood is a part of death. He does not argue with his biology. His graying hair is unevenly cut, but not so much that he draws attention. Mahano manages to do a decent job with the scissors. The thing is that in that, in the section you read is very descriptive, but what I wrote is that you're signifying poverty. You're not saying that they're mm. poor, you're not saying that, oh, they don't have access to care. You're describing the situation for the reader to come to their own conclusion about it. So my question then to you is, what choices did you make 
in the way you chose to signify the situations that these characters experience. And the other part, the second part of that question is, how does your writing of the neighborhood watch, how does it, um, where does it fall within existing writings about sub 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 subject matters? Sure, good questions, good questions all around. Um, I'll start with the first one. I think the choices that I had to make was acknowledging my own limitations. That's the hardest thing for a writer because when you're a writer, you're trying to play God with people's lives and you're creating universes from scratch. But I had to accept my primary limitations as a writer, that I have a gaze, that I have biases, that I have prejudices, that I can't see everything and can't feel everything as they should be felt and seen. So the choice I had to make was, look, we can talk about these people's situation, but I don't want to stray into poverty porn. And most of the, most likely, what I am assuming is I'm giving the reader the benefit of the doubt that they know what the deal is. I am assuming that they know. And if they don't know, I think in my head, I'm like, I feel bad for them, but I think everybody knows, everybody knows. Now, if everybody knows, is there a benefit in flogging the dead horse? Is there, a is there a benefit in going with the same metaphor, with the same imagery and whatnot? Once you reach that conclusion, then as a writer, you're challenging, you're really challenging yourself because you're trying to create something new from something that is old and you're looking for ways to go around that, to, to achieve that, that like, let's not be tired and be cliche or whatever. That's, I'm always trying to create new images and new ways of speaking and new ways of thinking. I don't always succeed in my work, but I, I think the, the effort is worth it. That's how you learn. That's how you tell a story. For me, it was acknowledging that this topic is new, not new. It has been talked about. The location might be new. The characters might be somewhat new. But let's commit fully and try and do it. And so that was my choice. The primary commitment to, yo, you can't do everything, but at least try. Like Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
think that's the sincerest question. Then the second, where it fits with other African writings or with other writings in general. About the, sub, no, about the subject matter. How do you, yeah. how do you deviate or are you writing within the established um, tradition? Ooh, yo girl, you hit me with a, with, a, with a curveball with that one. I don't even know how to begin answering that. So I'm going to be yeah. explicit in my reason for asking the question. There are some people who will read this story and they're going to be like, oh, this is just another story about poor Africans. You know? Oh, okay, okay, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so basically, um, if how does this story deviate from other stories about poor Africans? Yeah, how does it deviate? I think it's, I think it's a nice question, and I have to think about it as a writer. For me, it does follow in a very rich tradition of writings from the continent about Africans depicting their reality. So I won't say poor Africans. I'll say writers depicting their reality or reflecting their reality. Now, that reality to some people might sound very tired, okay, to the reader. But I have a question, is that reality not more fatiguing or more exhausting to the people living that reality? And so I answer this question this way, writers are only arbitrators of reality. We can only show you some of the things that are there. We the readers, and I am a reader, critics, everybody, they are the administrators of reality. They are the ones who do the day-to-day -day things of changing reality. If you want a different story coming through in writings, you need to make sure that the reality has changed because if the reality has not changed, they're going to continue getting these narratives. And so for me, I have no shame of saying that it follows in a tradition of similar writing. Let's say Olufemi Terry's uh, Stick Fighting Days or McKenon Jerica's Fanta Black Current. Yeah, it's there. And I think for me, where it deviates is I've changed location, I've changed geography, I've changed time spaces. And my message is like the fucked upness of this situation is still happening regardless of geography. And I think that is a question that needs to be answered. And where I would like to deviate, say deviates from it is it's offering a vintage touch on these things it's got it's got a vintook outlook on it and i think in it there's i think there's a there's humor in it that you will not find in these situations but namibians are they have a strange sense of humor man like we are a strange strange nation we laugh at the strangest things and so for me that's the deviation in it like we laugh at strange things and because it's a desert like no everyone forgets what namibia is namibia is a desert you cannot survive this place without having a very, very good sense of humor. In acknowledging our, the harshness of our reality, we also leave space for humor and most importantly, hope. If the Neighborhood mm. Watch were a living or dead posse, which group would they be? And which album from the group's discography, discography best describe yeah. their trajectory? Um, I'm going to choose Ladysmith Black Mambazo because they are... <laughs> they are a group that I grew up with as a kid. Like we, I don't know whether there's any kid in Southern Africa who does not know Ladysmith Black Mambazo. Like they're the band that your parents put on on Sundays when they are cleaning or cooking. They're like everywhere. And they just sing a lot of different spiritual, no, not spiritual. Is it spiritual? Yeah, ancestry spiritual music, but not not Christian, but it's more like indigenous. They lick a lot of indigenous songs, native songs. And they are, they've been around for years, for absolute years. Like you, you can't, I can't think of 
any era where Ladysmith was not recorded, but they sing a lot of, a lot of songs, not just Zulu, but they, most of their catalog is Zulu. And so I choose them because their sound has grown up with me, but most of their songs are also about migration. They're about loss. They're about the black condition in South Africa and Africa to a large extent. And when I look at them, when I see them perform, I really see like the soundtrack of, of the neighborhood watch playing out. <laughs> about their performance it always starts with one guy and then all the other voices join in and i always think there's like something aliasy about the way they always start their songs so it's like one guy often with like a high voice a falsetto with this african falsetto voice setting the thing and then and then boom everyone else joins in and then the stories and then their music always starts going from like rainy season to dry season, mm-hmm. hunting season to like drought, city mm-hmm. to village. And it's always moving around. And I choose them, specifically them, for their longevity and for having survived this ruthless, ruthless music, African music industry, just like the Neighborhood Watch. The last dedication has to go out to their, to their, to their, to their leader, the leader, the longtime leader of the, of the of the Ladysmith Black Mambazo group. The, the song that I picked, The Lion Sleeps Tonight, Solomon Linda wrote that, but Joseph Sabalala was the, was the lead singer of the, of the group. He's just an icon and an institution. So Joseph Sabalala, RIP. I like, I've, I've adopted this new thing that I want to coin. And I want, Sarah, I'm hoping this, this thing goes global. I hope this thing goes global. I hope your podcast gets picked up by like a billion people so it becomes the thing. This thing of resting in peace, when uh, it's not, it's not African. Our ancestors don't rest in peace. Rest in peace to do what? They move in power. MIP, move in power. Move in power. Because you know, the ancestors, us, they're always also doing work in the afterlife. Our ancestors don't go rest in coffins and just die for all eternity when. No, we must move in power. (laughs) So Joseph Sabalala, move in power. You know, that's the title of your episode, by the way, Moving Power. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, You're the best, Sarah. In the story, we talked about the characters, right? And Umahano um, is the only woman. Uh, She's the only one who does not have an Anglo-centric name or a Eurocentric name. She's the only character whose backstory we did not get. She just seemed to be hanging on to the group, even though it seemed like she played a role, but we don't know the exact role that she played within the group, except where the reader finds out a bit more details about the woman's role in the group. Hmm. Two questions. One is provocative, and the other one is a bit more um, friendlier. The friendly question is, why did you choose to write Umahano the way you you did? And the provocative yeah. question is, can men write good women mm. characters in their fiction? Okay, yeah. The friendly, is un- the friendly answer is why I chose that is because even amongst invisible people or voiceless people, there are some who are more voiceless and more invisible than others. So in amongst the homeless, whenever we think of a homeless, the idea, the concept of a homeless person is almost always male. 
no one ever realized that women are equally homeless and that the challenges they face to survive the streets or the tough situations are even harder and more devastating to them. The choices they have to make are brutal. Think about this, yourself as a woman with the four walls and a roof over your head, an income of some sort, food on the table, friends and family, you still have to go through specific motions to protect yourself from men. If we strip you off the walls, the roof over your head, your income, your money, whatever, what will you do to survive the street? What would you do? What choices would you have to make? Would you still be Sarah as we know you, books and rhyme, pa 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 pa, somi them? I don't know. I hope so. But the reality might be no, you might be pushed into an even narrower channel of life where you have to make very messed up decisions about your personhood, about your sexuality, about your personal health choice, things that like affect your entire being. And you might have to do those to survive. Just, this is what I'm saying, just to survive, just to survive until tomorrow. I think Omarano is a representation of that situation. And I'm trying to again say, look at the magic trick in the left hand, but this is where in the right hand where the deception really happens. Her absence speaks volumes about the things that we recognize in not only homeless communities around the world, but just in society in general, for me at least. She doesn't, she doesn't have a voice. She doesn't have a, 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 a role. No, she plays an absolutely important role, but her voice doesn't come through. Why? Because she's surrounded by four male characters and the world being what it is, one woman amongst four on the street, that's, isn't that what, would that situation be different if I said that was like a corporate boardroom? One woman amongst four, four, four guys, if, and, and you know how these corporate boards are, they'll give you like a nominal directorial thing and like, and you are the head of HR, even though you've, you could easily be CEO. And you know how the corporate world thinks about HR. It's like a woman's job, you know, stupid stuff like that. So if you transpose those people from, from the street and you put them in a corporate boardroom, has anything changed? I don't think so. If you put them in a governmental system and say, this is the political party of Namibia, has anything changed? Definitely not. And so it's always, women are always being pushed into smaller margins where they have to make harder choices that are just, that the ordinary person does not comprehend. And so even amongst the voiceless, there are some who are more voiceless than others. The unfriendly question, can men write characters, female characters? Well, the answer, obviously, from the, from the top of my head, like when you think about it as an intellectual exercise, it is, it is very possible. It's not impossible. You know what I'm saying? It is not impossible. Do they actually do it is a whole other question. And the answer to that is, not all the time. Why don't they do it all the time? For me, it stems from an inability from most male writers, no matter how skilled they are, to accept the fullness of their life with both the masculine and the feminine part. So they, they you, on the one hand, you're gifted with describing sunsets and mountains and the movement of history and capital flow. And then you're like, is this what you think breast do in a sex scene? Ah, come on, man. <laughs> no. Oh, my goodness. And so the, the male gaze is always like 
forced or at least male writers pay attention to like what they think are great and seismic forces in the world and literature think of uh, rather let me reach for this prisoners know the movement of their wardens and jailers better than the jailers know the prisoners but the jailer doesn't knows nothing about the hundred people he's keeping an eye on that's for me the best metaphor to describe why men cannot consistently write good female characters. They are that warden or that jailer. And to the jailer, all he sees are prisoners, i.e. women, just women. But the, the people in the cells, the prisoners, they see the jailer in, like, in his individuality. And so women see individuality amongst themselves and reward that in their writing. But men see generality in women and put that nonsense into their writing. Am I going to say that I'm exempted from this? I don't think I am exempted because I have been trained and I've studied English and I've been reading and ingesting things that then go on to inform my writing. So I carry these inherent weaknesses within myself as well. So it is more for me as a writer, as a male writer, I am saved. I am Sarah, I need to tell you this, I am so thankful that I am so new to this because it is not too late to learn and unlearn. But I am, I'm still young, I can unlearn the things that I've picked up and hopefully in the writings that come in the future, you're able to see these processes and these learnings. And then again, male writers just don't like being told that they're wrong, they just, I don't know where it comes from, but no. Thankfully, and I can say this for myself, I have never worked with a male editor. My publisher of my novel, female. My first editor, female. All the short stories I've worked on, all the editors have been female. There's so many women in publishing, but so few little women on the bookshelves. Why? Why is that? That's a question that needs to be thought about. You said about um, women on the shelf. I mean... Yeah. Most books on my shelves are by women in contemporary yeah. fiction. Um, so it could be, be your gaze. Yeah, man. yeah. These are, questions, these are questions that we need to answer by ourselves as writers and readers. Because for now, I can tell you the default situation in my reading community or my literary community in Winterpen, Namibia, is that all the writings are colonial or pre-colonial. Not, not pre-colonial, they're all colonial writings. Like it's, it's, it's literally heavy. Like none of these writers are living anymore and they're all male and why because these are the books that are is available to get here so i if you were to ask me to show you my bookshelf you would be a little disappointed by like how very how few women they are because their books are just not available here we can't get them whereas if you say remy try and match me book for book here ah i'll have to bar out even as an african on the continent i will bar out of that african literature race way before you do because i can't get this woman's book from somalia i can't get this book from congo i can't get this thing from sierra leone so, you know so there are all of these levels stratifications that we need to deal with and talk about what we're reading because I think now, presently, there's curiosity about everything and everybody, but there is not enough representation and economic mobilization behind everything and everyone. So we want to read women, but 
they are not giving us or making the books available to us. We want to read black writers, but we can't find black writers on our bookshelf. Which book or short story collection would you recommend to listeners and readers who wish to read something, something similar or are looking to further explore the topics and themes in The Neighborhood Watch? One of the works is in progress that I'm currently reading is Ishmael Bear's uh, A Family, which is from Sierra Leone. He's a Sierra Leonean writer. He wrote uh, Radiance of Tomorrow and A Long Way From Home. And that man's writing is majestic. Oh my gosh, like I cannot say enough about that dude's writing. Uh, so that's very good. I'd also recommend the 2010 Ken Prize winner Olufemi Terry's Stick Fighting Days, which I enjoyed personally because it draws on a lot of like references from like the Lord of the Rings. And so I, I am a Lord of the Rings fan and I enjoyed that. But it deals with similar matters, uh, not similar matters, but similar themes. And then if you can get your hands on the Granta book of the African short story, which was compiled by Helen Habila, who also won the Kane Prize in 2001, you will have a very good insight, a cross-cutting segment of writing from the African continent that deals with themes more than just stories about poor Africans, if we're going to go with that narrative. But it's nice and rich and spiced with many flavors. Um, and, it's, and I think it's, it's rich. The sweep is continental. It's very representative. And so for those reasons, I recommend those ones. The Granta Book of the African Show Story needs to be paired with Salif Keita's song, Africa. Africa. That song, Salif Keita sings a little bit about every country, about why Africa is home and why it's good and all of those things. And it's, it's such a nice song, man. Like I really, oh man, it always makes me feel like this little Ubuntu, Pan-African, first like 1970 festival thing. It's always nice. And then there's one more modern song, which I think tries to achieve the same thing. Uh, your girl, Yemi Alade and Saudi Soul, Africa. Africa, nowhere be like home. Yeah. And you know, just, there's just always these lines that just like make you feel like, hell yeah, hell yeah. And so, and so that's, that's, that, that's the, those are the two songs I would pair with the African book of short story writing from Granta. Uh, it is so, so exquisitely put together, cross-cutting, representative, diverse theme storytelling. And just some of those writers you see in there, I've tried to pursue further writings of theirs and it's just so hard, but you're like, damn, the short story is so good. Yeah, mm. so I'd recommend that. What is the difference in the writing process of The Neighborhood Watch and your novel, The Eternal Audience of One? Um, writing a short story, any short story is an exhausting process. It's like running the 400 meter race 
in the Olympics, in the final. You can't slow down because you don't know whether you'll catch up. And you're running against very fast runners, like the best in the world. That's what writing a short story, I think, for me is like. You have to sit down and get it all out and leave it all there. Boom, one go. Doesn't mean that perfection has to be there on the first draft, but the, the essence of the story, you have to pull it and wrestle it from the ether and put it on the page as quickly as possible before you start A, doubting too much and B, getting distracted by other things. Whereas writing a novel is more like, I guess, like a marathon. Yeah, it's more like a marathon. So you get to slow down, you get to speed up, you, you gauge your time differently. You've got a long way to go. So you've got to be like, mm, speed up here, slow down here, whatever. But a better metaphor, because I knew, I know, I know there's everyone who talks about running and whatnot. A better metaphor is food, because I, I like food, you know? A short story, when you're preparing it, you want to cook it up like street food. You, gotta, you wanna make it up, cut it up, chop it up fast. And you just know when you bite into like a hot dog or shawarma and you're like, mm, and you're hungry and you're like, this is the best thing ever. And you know, especially when it's been prepared properly, like a shawarma that's been made right there, chopped like this. You know, like this shawarma is about to change your life. Same thing with like a hot dog, simple, yeah? Mm. Simple, but when you're hungry and it's just, this is the best hot dog in the world ever. That's what I think. For me, that's what you want to have with the hot dog. You want the sauces dripping on your hands and you got to lick your fingers and whatever. <laughs> and then if it's a good piece of street food, it is satisfying. And then there's like always space for a little more. Just yep, yep. one more. One yep. to go. One to go. <laughs> you know? Yep. Um, whereas a novel, that's more like a dining experience. And then that's why I think it's better to describe with food because there's so many kinds of dying expenses where you have to sit down. You can have a home cooked meal on a date. That's intimate. When someone invites you to their home and just you sitting and cooking and you know, you have a conversation or you can sit at a fine dining cuisine where you have like a three course meals where you don't know which fork is which or whatever. That's what writing a novel is like from the, I think for me as a writer, what am I trying to serve the reader? Is it street food? Is it quick? Is it spicy? Is it sweet? Whereas with a novel, I'm trying to gauge what kind of dining experience do I want them to have? Mm -hmm. Am I going for intimacy? Am I going for snobbishness? So it's about, yeah. it's about trying to gauge the, what I'm trying to serve to the reader. And then based on, I think based on that, then you, change your tools because the tools for a short story are quite different from a novel. Both of them are food. Yeah. But you got to chop your ingredients up differently. Um, and that's, I think that's where I can explain the difference. One is quick and one has to be sudden and one has to be hot. The other one, you can slow boil, you can roast it. You can do all of these kind of slow cooking types, different techniques. Ultimately, ultimately, Sarah, and I want, I want you, I want, and I think you can agree with me on this. And I think a lot of people who do write know this. Regardless of medium, regardless of form, regardless of topic, content, theme, whatever, style, reading is the very first thing that you must do. You know, reading. Because you won't know what a short story is 
until you read some. Mm -hmm. You know, the, a lot of these concepts we're talking about, short story, novella, novel, they're very hazy thing because I've read some very long short stories. But when I say short story, a reader who reads knows exactly what I'm talking mm -hmm. about. You know, and when I say flash fiction, you don't need to explain to me what flash fiction is. I know what it is because I have seen it. So mm -hmm. a lot of these concepts are like, you have to see them to know what they are. And so if you're not reading, if you're not actively trying to engage with the literature, with work, with people's output, then you won't know what it is. Mm -hmm. So it's pointless for me to talk to you about sculpture because I don't know sculpture. I haven't looked at it i haven't been told this is from this era this is whatever i don't have that knowledge but people who are interested in sculpture will pin like that so your book the eternal audience of one is available to the yeah. african market the eternal audience of one was published and is published by blackbird books in johannesburg it is currently uh, the English world rights have been sold to Scout Press in the U.S. Any fine bookstore should be able to have it. So you can get it from there. You can also order a copy from the Blackbird Books website, which is www.blackbird.africa. So you can order it from there. The international version will be available in 2021 in what they call fall or September. It's worth waiting for because the international version and the version that's in SADC are going to be like, not different, but we've, we're not adapting. How do I say? We're editing and we're changing some things, just shortening Ooh. something. So it's a different version. Yeah. So there'll be like two stories that exist Ooh. simultaneously. It's, it's interesting stuff, man. Here's a better way to explain it. What SADC has is the director's cut the rest of the world will get the cinematic release. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's interesting, man. I've never been through this process where your first, where your second book is your first one. <laughs> and I'm having to like really, and so it's basically uh, thinning out some parts, making it lean, not, not cutting, it's the wrong way to, Phrase it. it's been put on a little bit of a diet and it it feels different you know and it's it's nice like a, it's same story same character same location same things you barely won't you won't notice like what's what's been removed if dirk the magazine could be distilled to a musical artist which artist <laughs> um yeah i should have seen this <laughs> I should have seen this from a mile away. I have this song from this jazz band all the way from New York. I'm not saying that it's a New York song, you know, but I, I came across them. I liked their title, the title of this song. And it is something that I've taken, I've taken to heart. The song says, the lyric, not the lyrics, because the, it's a jazz song, there's no lyrics, but the title of the song is, You Make the Road. It's called the Menahan Street Band. M-E-N-A-H-A-N, Menahan Street Band. I'll tell you this, when you hear this song, you will have heard it in another equally popular song. It is the most, when it was released, it was like the most sampled jazz thing in like years. but that really hit hard like and it makes sense for me with Duke because 
I am coming to this thing and there are no roads. And so you make the road by walking. It's so encouraging to me, like on days when like, I'm, I'm like quarter to like, screw this, I'm giving up. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just a reminder that, you know, you make the road by walking and it doesn't matter how far you go, the second person will come, relieve you of your duty and take it further. This literary thing for me, this African literary thing is a relay. Everybody has to run their stretch because you literally can't run the whole race by yourself. You realize quite quickly, you're only gonna be able to go so far and then you're gonna have to pass on the baton. And I think that is, that is important to keep in mind that you are going to clear the trail for the person who follows after you because we're trying to move in power and we're trying to create legacy because only legacy is going to be able to prevent us from being prey. So the Duke Magazine, we publish fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and visual art from Namibia, the Namibian diaspora, and Africa. The reason why those three categories is because within Namibia, our, within Namibia the geographic space ourselves, we don't consume enough of our own art. We are also not con connected to the Namibian diaspora because there are a lot of Namibians out there in the world doing amazing things and we never hear about them. And then just Africa, because if ever there was a moment to reconnect to our fellow brothers and sisters on the continent and in the diaspora, now, now would be it. So that's why those three content pools that we constantly try to tap. You can literally see our growth through the editions that we put in. In our second edition, we had some very, very, very good writers. Writers who were shortlisted for the Kane Prize. We had McKenna Onjerika who won it in 20, 2018. And we had Bongani who was shortlisted for the same prize in 2016. Um, and so that was when we started branching out to African writing as well, featuring some. And then our third edition, which is the one that has brought us out of what I think is the wild and onto a national and international stage. We have had Zukiswa Warner interviewed in it. We have featured Mozambique, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and South Africa. And so to have all of those people in this edition has really helped us to bring this publication to the front. But the challenges that you are asking about, starting a lit mag is hard because you're always wading into the unknown you don't know what's out there. You don't know who your support base will be. You don't know where your readers are going to come from. You're not sure about which writers will take your mission to heart and actually be sincere about it. And then you're going to face a lot of pushback from your space, uh, for your own geographic space. Literary magazines are not like other magazines. They are critical. They are they, they're, they're quite blunt and honest in their, in their missions and the things that they try to do. Um, and then the writers that they decide to feature are sometimes not, not what the space considers to be the best or the most popular or whatever. So you would have like, mm, you started this thing, what is in it for me? It's even small. It's, is it even a literary magazine? It's just a blog. <laughs> you know, so those types of things are things that you need to, those are attitudes that you have to face and face and you have to navigate and confront on a regular basis. But ultimately it's, it's rewarding. And then the last hurdle is the perception of African lit mags. So mm -hmm. people will willingly wait for 10 months for granted to tell them no, but not take the first chance with, with Duke or with Lolwe in Kenya or the JRB in Johannesburg or Bakwa books in, in West Africa. You know, there's this perception that whatever is in the West is always going to be better. And so you have a lot of very good writers 
being rejected by the New Yorker, by Granta, by one story, by a public space, but your work might find resonance and amplification on the continent. Lolo is completely Pan-African and it's impressive that they have the time and the energy to keep that up. And I'm really, I'm hoping and I'm rooting for them that they grow and become bigger because we need Lolo to stay here and to continue doing what it's doing. Because like I said, too many of us are standing in like the wrong club lines in New York or London or Chicago or wherever, you know, we're, we're, we're outside the club and we can't get in. But if you just come back home, you might find the club is open and the, there's no queue, there's no admission fee, you know, that kind the of thing. And the drink is better. The music is lit, fam. The music is, the music <laughs> is just way more lit. So those kinds of things that we're considering. So Lolwe is like really pioneering a lot of things and we're, we're learning from them and we're seeing how they move and how they grow. And we're using that for our own experiences because like I said, if you're gonna get anywhere, if you're gonna go far, you gotta go together. So I'm seeing what they're doing and I'm learning a lot. A lot. Yeah. So yeah. thank you for being very open in this conversation because a lot of the time we see the front end, you know, we see the products that we enjoy. And let's be honest, mm. we are consuming a lot of these outputs for free, you know, mm. and, mm. Um, you know, we don't realize the amount of work, amount of sleepless mm. nights that goes into mm. it, the amount mm. of negotiations, negotiating relationships, you know, your professional relationships, your personal, your personal life, a personal relationship, and also negotiating your colleagues and your collaborators as well, you know, mm. and we just wanted to ask this question about, um, about working together with other um, literary magazines and other people, like you mentioned, Bakwa, who yeah. are amazing. Nikashu McVibber yeah. is doing the thing. I mean, do you know, I call him hashtag Bakwa everything because Bakwa is taken over the world. <laughs> you know, they've got Bakwa cards, Bakwa podcast, yeah. Bakwa yeah. magazine, Bakwa yeah. books, Bakwa yeah. sunshine. I don't know if that's going to yeah. be coming next, you know. And then you mentioned Lolway. And obviously, Bristol Paper, which has been going on for, you know, um, yeah. celebrating the 10th anniversary. Yeah this year and then you know duck fifth um sorry i beg your pardon third issue you know is coming mm. out so we already have these people who have set up their different magazines or the different um establishment let's just let's let's mm. you know use the word you know they're established they're, they're setting up their establishment mm. how what is the reality of cross pollination um and also cross collaboration and also um sharing ideas with each other and resources. We finally have what I call an editorial team. We've got two fiction editors, two poetry, two non-fiction editors, and one visual arts editor and a, um, a poetry editor. Now, to reach that level of reaching out to people and working with them, it's, it's a choice that you have to make because you have to constantly fight that Superman complex that says, I can do everything by myself. The fact of the matter is that you could probably do some things by yourself and you can do a small fraction of those things very well, but a lot of other things are going to be rubbish at, you know, or you're going to have blind spots. Everybody's got blind spots. And so in reaching out to this editorial team, for me, it was important to get people who are firstly in Namibia, because this is where the roots are. The roots have to be from here. If this thing is to go anywhere, it has to have roots here. But then on top of roots, you need a stem and you need branches and you need leaves. And so I've been fortunate enough to have a nonfiction editor, one nonfiction editor from Swaziland. I mean like Swaziland, who knows that there's Swazi writers over there. But I asked 
and the dopest in the whole country was like, I'll join. Uh, Zambia, Mubanga from Zambia, uh, who's an award-winning author and short story writer. Even before she was like, dude, if you ever need help, let me know. Um, Troy Onyango reached out and gave me advice and said, yo, what, what do you think of structuring this way and moving in this direction, whatever? I listened, I was like, you know what? This is where we wanna go. And if we're able to do that with help from internally, from using a Namibian core and then being helped by a Pan-African support system, that's the only way we are going to be able to grow. More people have heard about Duk from other people outside the country than inside the country. The help is there. I think we just need to be brave enough to ask for it. But literally, so I, I don't think we... And then the last step is uh, a, un a union of African literary magazines, my friend, because the AU is not doing anything for us. No, we nothing. must save ourselves. You know, we must save ourselves and we must have clout to be able to say publishing is treating us this way and we refuse to play along with this game because we have our own list of recommendations and we come to the table with authority and with legitimacy from our own community. Parami, <laughs> thank you so much. I really enjoyed yeah. this. I knew I would enjoy the conversation and it exceeded my expectations, which yeah. is a lot. So thank you, Remy. No, thank you. Can I, can I add a last shout out, please? Can of I last, last shout out? And I'm not sure whether you can manage to fit this into the podcast, but it is, I would sincerely like to congratulate and extend my warmest and most sincerest appreciations to everyone who has not only supported my work, but every single person involved in the African literary scene. One question yeah. I want to ask you is, um, where can people find you on, on the web? So your social media handles, do they want to get in touch with you or your website? I, me personally, Remy, can be reached on Twitter, on Instagram, or on Facebook at Remy the Quill, R-E-M-Y-T-H-E-Q-U-I-L-L. And my website is also www.remythequill.com. Remy, seriously, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so pleased that you were shortlisted and awesome. I'm so pleased that our paths got to cross. I came across you for the first time at the Afro Lee Sans Frontiers uh, uh, Instagram <laughs> hat. And I was like, who is this person? Why are they asking these questions? <laughs> but, oh, why has no one thought of these questions before? He's making this festival even more exciting. Oh, I don't mind spending time here now. So, no, because you, 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 you bridge the gap between the reader and the writers, you know, and you do that so well, so effortlessly, and you do that so, so joyously as well. And I thank, thank you, man. You. Like, writers are awesome people. Readers are even better. Like, readers are the best. And you are one of the best readers around. So thanks, man. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Books and Rhymes. When I tell you, I have so much fun producing and conducting these interviews as I hope you have listening to them. Get in touch with us. What do you think of the episode? What do you like? Are there further conversations you want to have? Send us an email to booksandrhymes at gmail.com. Tweet your thoughts by using the hashtag booksandrhymes. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at booksandrhymes. That's books and rhymes. The song you heard in the intro and outro of this podcast is titled Reset by Mia Kumb.
That's Meakum spelled M for mother, E-A-K-O-O-M for mother. The song is available on Bandcamp and you can click the link in the show notes. Let us know what you think by sending us an email. Our email address is booksandrhymes at gmail.com. That's booksandrhymes at gmail.com. Tell your friends about the podcast. Subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a review on iTunes. Tell us what you think. Tell other people what you think and just help us grow because, you know, we're doing great things and we're platforming literature by wonderful writers who are referencing great music and great writing. So have a great day and see you next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.